Hi, everybody. Welcome to Sweat the Technique, a podcast about all the things we learned in schools and running schools that we think might be relevant to the rest of the world. My guest today is Carl Hendrick. He is the author of several books on cognitive psychology and teaching, including How Learning Happens with Paul Kirshner, How Teaching Happens also with Paul Kirshner and with Jim Heal, and with Robin McPherson, What Does This Look Like in the Classroom? These are actually fascinating books. They review key studies in the world of educational psychology and reflect on their applications in the classroom. Possibly no one better do, to do this than Carl, who is, in addition to an advocate of cognitive science, has been a teacher, an English teacher for 15 years, for at least 15 years. And as we'll get to, lots of other fascinating things in his background. So Carl, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Good to see you. Yeah, great to see you as well. So I think of this as a learning podcast and not specifically a schools podcast, though obviously we'll want to talk about teaching. But I want to encourage you to talk about learning in the classroom, but also, as I know, you're a man of the world. Last time we were together, I think you quoted Joe Strummer and John Keats in the same evening. So I have the receipts on that, by the way, if anyone's wondering <laughs> if that really happened. And Carl, I thought maybe I could start with a story and then we'll circle back to the book because I think it's just been reissued. So last time I saw you, it was at a rooftop bar in Barcelona. It was a beautiful evening with you and me and Hector Ruiz Martin, eminent cognitive psychologist, his wife and my son, my 22 year old son, which was a, was a great group. And you were quoting Keats at length. I think you rattled off five sort of brilliant, iconic, canonized poems that he wrote in a single year. Ode to a Grecian Urn, Ode to a Nightingale, Ode to Psyche. I had to look that up. But interestingly, you didn't. You had that knowledge available to you because a lot of people would say, oh, if I ever needed to know the dates of Keats's poems, I'd just look them up. But that wasn't really what happened in that conversation. I'm thinking about, I have a bookshelf in my office where I keep books that I've read that were incredibly important to me. And so like I put them on this bookshelf because I don't want to forget them. And I walked by the bookshelf the other day and one of the books on the shelf, I remember putting it there because it was so profound. It was Nagi Mahfouz, the Egyptian novelist. And I remember just like loving this novel. And, and I walked by this book and I was like, okay, what do I remember from that book? nothing. What happens in the book? Nothing. What is the name of the protagonist? Nothing. Why did I love that book so much? Nothing. And so it just struck me as like, I'm struck by the difference between you and me, which is how many of the things that are important to me I've simply lost and how many of the things that are important to you, you still have access to. And I think that there's something important there for the way that we teach and for the way that learning happens, which is generally we can't control our own memories. And frankly, I think we're a little bit dismissive of memory in the classroom and how we teach young people. And I just, I would love to ask, how do you make memory building a part of your own reading and learning? Well, in terms of Keats, I'd say having taught him multiple times helps. So you, a lot of your work shows that a lot of teaching is about particular routines. It's about making something look spontaneous that really isn't spontaneous. It's kind of routines or this sort of paradox of having things that are relatively scripted enable you to be more free. So that helps. But I, I would say it's another thing that's useful is, and again, linking back to cognitive psychology and things like schema theory, we kind of connect new information to old information that we already know. This is one of the kind of foundational stones of cognitive psychology. Like if you're coming at Ulysses by James Joyce without an understanding of the Odyssey, at best, your understanding of it is severely impoverished. So I think there was that synoptic element to it. But every day I go past books, you know, and you know what's even more terrifying than that thought that you said? There's books that I remember reading 20 years ago where I just had to lie down on my bed. I closed the last page and I just lay down and went, oh, Jesus. I mean, one of them is The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner. I had that exactly the same response to that. Yeah. yeah. And here's the, here's like an even worse thing. Worse thing than not remembering why it's good. 
what if you go back to read it and it's not as good as you remember it? In other words, it's not the thing that you thought it was. Or Marianne Wolf tells a story in Reader Come Home. You know, she, she's talking about this book that was transformational for her. And she goes back to try and read it. And it's not the same. And what she says is that the reason it's not the same is because I know that my capacity to pay attention has been changed. Right. You know, in this sort of state of constant half attention. And she's, she's aware that she can't access the state of deep focus, concentration and reflection. It's not just the book that is at risk of this death struggle against technology and the cell phone, but even the act of deep reading. Like when I watch my son reading, he's lying on his back on the couch and his cell phone is on his chest, right? And so every minute there's a push message. And so there's never that state of meditative intensity that I think was probably implicit in your reading of Sound and the Fury. Do you worry about that? When I did my degree, it was sort of pre-internet, really. And certainly you couldn't get internet on a phone. You know, you didn't have the kind of stuff that was online now. So I kind of think that we were given to experiences of immersion that might be gone. Or at least you need to develop some sort of Amish resistance to modernism in, <laughs> in order to, to sort of complete them. But I, even if you take the phone away, they're still, they're not going to have that kind of immersed experience. I think there are two separate questions here. One is how do you exert what you described as a sort of Amish resistance to modernism in our own lives? And then there's the question of like, can and should or must schools play this role? And, you know, should phones and screens be present in schools? Is the role of schools to help socialize young people to a world of attention that is slipping away. Because we're not just talking about cell phones, we're talking about changes to attention and changes to cognition and, and changes to the neuroplasticity in the way that we wire our brains. If you're going to write a recipe for schools to be able to help young people achieve the states of concentration and immersion in what they're studying, what do we do about that? I think we'll look back in 10 years at the ubiquity of phones in schools and we'll say, how on earth did we allow kids to be in the firing line of billions of dollars worth of research onto how to distract them out of their minds. You know, what kids are doing on a mobile phone is a deranging experience. It's this continuous flicking between increasingly superficial information all the time. And it's just this kind of rapid oscillation in your brain. And we, like, we know that that type of stuff is the death knell for really attending to important things or focusing on things. It's certainly scary times. And, you know, the best case scenario is that we look back on this in 10 years and think that it's a lot like in my high school, there was a smoking lounge for the students. You know, it was your right to smoke in school. And I hope the best case scenario is that in 10 years, we'll look back and be like, my God, you know, we provided teenagers with access to a product that's designed to exploit their attention and there were no constraints on it. Let's transition a little bit. Maybe I'll throw a, a ham-handed transition here, which is one of the interesting things about the research on cell phones is that one of the best antidotes to cell phones is to be engaged in activities like sports or drama or even, you know, church where you go to activities where you don't have your phone in your hand for two hours and you connect with people socially and interact, you know, to achieve a common purpose. Sport is a great example of that. My, mm -hmm. my two older kids played a lot of sport, you know, for two and a half hours, four times a week, five times a week. They would be phone free, but also just engage with their peers and common purpose. And one of the interesting things, in addition to your love of teaching English, I know you, you coach football a bit and have a real interest in the game. And one of the things I find myself doing is often talking about cognitive research, much of the cognitive research that you describe in your book with football clubs. And one of the, you know, you were talking about how you read Ulysses differently if you've read Homer, that what you know shapes what you see. And I think this is one of the most important and maybe overlooked aspects of learning in the game of football, soccer, coaches often say the game is the best teacher. I should just set up games and let kids 
play. And in the course of playing, they will learn. And I think that you would say that, by the way, one of the most commonly cited articles in your book that I use with football clubs is Chief Eltovich and Glazer. So maybe you could just start by describing that research and what it tells us about the role of knowledge and perception. And then I'd love to hear you react to the phrase, the game is the best teacher, is the game the best teacher? So that's a really interesting study because they looked at the, the differences between novices and experts. And, you know, before you can attempt to solve a problem, you need to understand what the problem is. And they looked at physics problems and essentially what they discovered was that experts actually see problems differently than novices. And so a lot of the kind of battles in education, they come out of this idea that things that seem probable are improbable and things that are improbable or seem improbable are probable. Yeah. Like the, one of the weirdest things about teaching is that very often you need to do the opposite of what you think you need to do to get a particular outcome. So it would seem to make sense to say to somebody, well, here's a problem, just discover how to do it and you'll just, you'll fail and fail and then you'll hit it and you'll know it forever, that kind of thing. But, you know, one of the things that I think is that I found really powerful when I first encountered cognitive science, because like, like most teachers, there's not that much knowledge or understanding of the basic cognitive architecture of how the brain learns. By the way, it's much more advanced yeah. in the UK than the US, I would say. Right. Teachers are much more likely to know cognitive load theory, retrieval practice, etc. Yeah. But that's a very, I think that's a very kind of recent thing. I would say I was five years into being a teacher and I started working in a, an inner city London state school, which was uh, you know pretty challenging in terms of you know, behavior and student needs and stuff. And I loved it, but there was probably like three major ideas floating around at that time, which is the kind of mid to late two, 2000s. One was, if the students misbehave, then it's your fault for not planning the lesson to be engaging enough. Engagement was this kind of totemic thing. You know, if the students are active, engaged, and obviously they're learning stuff, you know, it's obvious. And if the kids are just kind of sitting there staring at a book and they're not actively, you know, whatever. So that was the first thing. The second thing was that by making content relevant to the students, you're going to be able to teach it better and they're going to be able to understand it better. Now, there's a grain of truth in that in the sense that if they're learning stuff that's connected to what they already know, then it'll be easier for them to assimilate that. But it played out with, I remember a, a teaching expert, there used to be like local education authorities would come in to teachers and novice teachers and say, okay, this is the thing you should do. And I remember someone, I was teaching Hamlet and, and they were saying, how should you teach it? And, and they were saying, well, why don't you try taking some lyrics from Eminem? Because they're interested in that. So put the baseball cap on backwards, put the chair down. But there was a lot of that stuff floating around. And there was a lot of like, okay, let's get a football. Let's start kicking that around the classroom, all this kind of nonsense. And these lessons were graded as outstanding all the time. People would look at these lessons and go, you know, outstanding. And they still are today. And then the kids or the students kind of do standardized tests and they don't do so well. And the fault is not with the lessons or the teaching, but with the tests themselves. It's interesting because one of the things you're talking about there is an implicit question about how to motivate students, especially students who might not be that motivated. And I think that this is one of the things that in all areas of learning people misunderstand most. They tend to sort of pander. Either they pander and like, oh, I will, you know, instead of doing Shakespeare, we'll do sort of Shakespeare through the lens of Eminem lyrics. Or I can't really teach students until they know that I care about them. So I'll spend a lot of time talking to them about like, what movie did you see last weekend in the hopes that at some point I'll be able to teach them because the relationship with me will motivate them. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your understanding of the science of motivation. And maybe you could start with, you, you told Phil Naylor on his very excellent podcast, what motivates students most is achievement. Great. Nuttall wrote a book called The Hidden Lives of Learners, 
and in the book, he makes a couple of claims. One of them is that students can be busiest with stuff that they already know how to do. And in some of the lessons he observed, students knew up to 50% of what the teacher was talking about. Now, that's fine for consolidation or whatever. But if you're kind of looking at a class and looking at students in there, they're simply just kind of parroting stuff that they already know how to do, then they're not going beyond their comfort zone and pushing themselves into a place that's uncomfortable. So I think we've got the causal arrow the wrong way around. So we often think about motivation in terms of step one, motivate the kids. Step two, this will lead them to be fired up and they'll you know, achieve things. And that's a cultural thing as well. I think, you know, you often see this in sport where the coach thinks, I've got to make some Shakespearean speech in the dressing room to really get them to think about stuff. When actually that never works, you know, what what actually works are structure, organization, fitness, you know, all little kind of marginal gains at, at the elite level, at least. Like I'm, I see it with my daughter who's learning how to read. And I, I had this real epiphany, like when my, my daughter who's five and she's gone from looking at words and letters as just hieroglyphics to now she can decode them and she can read words when we're about and stuff like that. And I was watching her learn how to do this and the kind of alchemy of her teacher, her reception teacher, and the sense of achievement and motivation that she now has simply from having a very tightly defined, here's how we're going to do this. Judith Hockman in her her book, The Writing Revolution, says we assign a lot of writing, but we don't teach writing, and that that's the problem. And one of my favorite recommendations of hers is to write in much smaller increments, to write single sentences, and have students practice like expanding their syntactic control, the number of forms that they can use in a sentence, and then revise the sentences and see the sentences getting single sentences getting better. And so she would say, "Great, let's read Act One, Scene One of Macbeth, and then let's try to write one single sentence that." captures an idea from it and then let's revise the sentence and talk about why it's good and so i think you might describe her as accessing the science of deliberate practice but i think maybe also you might argue accessing the science of motivation which is by the end of that lesson i can see that my sentence is different i can see that my sentence is better i understand how i did it and now i'm like okay tomorrow i'm kind of fired up to write a sentence about you know act one scene two i think so much of this is about trying to get kids to experience a version of themselves that they haven't yet experienced, a kind of alternate version of themselves that very often they don't even think that they can. One of the things about the evidence or the the cognitive science revolution, if we might call it that, is there's definitely such thing as a science of learning, but I'm not convinced there's such thing as a science of teaching in the sense that there's things that we know about the, the simple architecture of the brain. But when you scale that up into a classroom, it goes back to your sporting analogy. It's a kind of an arena of chaos. Now, you're never going to be convinced of winning a football match, but if you do these kind of five or six things within a game, you have dramatically increased your odds of getting a result. And they are things like okay, fitness before the game, but then probably defensive shape, organization, and then small things like positional sense with the players, what to do when you don't know what to do. And working harder than your opponent. If you kind of click all those boxes, you're probably going to get a result. And even even weaker teams can beat superior teams using uh, particular approaches. So that's why, I mean, to talk about your work, I think like a lot of the stuff you're doing seems to me to be, how do we bridge the gap between research and practice? This is the question that everybody's kind of thinking about now. Despite the fact that we've all this evidence from the laboratory, that there isn't really a lot of evidence from the classroom, from the field. Lee Schulman wrote when he was talking about 
pedagogy and domain specific pedagogy he he had this phrase which really stuck on my mind which is what we need now is richly developed portrayals of expertise and when i saw you give your talk cuz i had we've known each other for you know a long time but i'd never seen you talk through a video or do that kind of stuff and i remember sitting there thinking what wow, that's kind of what Schulman is talking about that what we need less of now is people quoting psychologists and you know research and this, that, and the other. We need to break it down for teachers too. In a classroom, even more specific, in a maths classroom, here's this thing. Let's watch it. Let's analyze it. So you can say to teachers, okay, cognitive load theory, working memory is limited. That's the broad brush stuff. But to bring it to life and talking through and analyzing them is so important. I think what you're describing is you have to understand the sort of core of how learning works. But once you understand it, then you need a really richly developed mental model of the ways that it can be implemented that you refer to when you have to make decisions about, you know, how am I thinking about working memory in this moment? You were referring to teaching writing. And I think Dylan William has this fascinating observation about writing where he says, you know, usually when we want to help kids write an essay, we give them a rubric is like we evaluate like did you have transitions between paragraphs and did you have you know rich evocative vocabulary and active verbs and that that's far less effective than giving kids exemplars here's a really good essay let's study it why is it so good what is it doing and that in many ways i think when we talk about teaching rather than giving people a list of things that they should try and do it's better to see a model why is this effective how is it using the ideas that we're talking about etc that models are more useful than rubrics but maybe we have a little bit of a rubric obsession in the profession yeah dylan's great I think Dylan has this phenomenal ability to distill complex things about learning and research and teaching and actually at a policy level and make it relatable to teachers. And uh, yeah, his assessment for learning is, I think, one of the most important pieces of research out there. Three more things I want to ask you about, and I'm, I'm just alert to time, so I'm going to make some abrupt transitions here. First thing, you mentioned your father. You have three children. What do you think about when you're parenting, and in particular when you're parenting and you're cognizant of the fact that you're teaching or that you're socializing your your own children to learn what kind of research are you drawing on how do you think about it when you're being a parent to your own children and trying to think about their learning i have three kids two-year-old twins and a five-year-old good luck to you my friend <laughs> they're storming the bastille as we speak you know they're they're crazy for a long time, your job is to just keep them alive. You know, you're you're not really trying to teach them stuff. It's very early evolution stuff. We're just trying to keep them alive here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's your hopes for your kids? That they'll be alive at the end of the day. <laughs> right. my, my instinct with them at this age is that they just need love and reassurance more than anything else. Mm. I guess if there was any research that I would draw on, it's being attentive and being as present as much as I possibly can be. So I never mm. have my phones around them. Or if I do, if I catch myself, pick, pull up my phone out of my pocket, even if they're doing something else, I put it away immediately. God, that's so important. It's so important. They'll understand that you're in the moment with them. So to be as present and like trivial things for them are big deals. You know, there's things for them, like even if they're fighting over a toy or like you think, oh, don't be so stupid, don't be so silly. But to them, it's a massive deal. And to try and treat that with respect within the boundaries of saying, okay, that's not appropriate. To do that, I understand that you feel angry, but that's not a good thing to do in that moment. To at least kind of have an understanding, because parenting, I think when I was younger, my parents were great; they were fantastic. But the, like, a lot of parenting I saw or I remember 
was really not present at all. And we were out running around the roads and getting into all kinds of trouble, which is, you know, not a bad thing now, now the older I think about it. But certainly uh, some parents, I remember them just being like, the sense was that their kids were an annoyance. The children were something to be endured more than anything else. And I, I, my whole thing with my own kids, I want them to feel that they're just the center of our world. And, and, and how do you do that? Well, all you can do is just tell them and show them. I think I mentioned in, in a week or two, I'm going to do an interview with my two older kids who are both at university now about this very topic of, you know, like ask them to reflect on my and my wife's parenting. But my working thing, which is very similar to what I believe about classrooms, I would say, is they should feel overwhelming, unconditional love. And they should also, part of my role is to teach them how to solve problems and how to do things. And so rather than saying, don't do that, having expectations and clear limits is a gift to them because often that's what they're trying to figure out than teaching them how to solve problems. A colleague of mine, Daryl Williams, loves to use the phrase replacement behaviors. Here's what we can do in this situation to solve this problem. But I think what you're describing is your warmth and your willingness to set limits and have expectations are different things. People often assume that you're either warm or you're strict. Yeah. I also try and get them to catch me reading. So with my five-year-old, we read picture books. That's a whole world that I had no idea of. And there's a whole kind of genre of picture books. They're just images. So you're kind of saying, okay, describe what you're seeing and how does that link with the previous page and where's the story going and so on and so forth. So we, we read them every night, but I want them to see this is what people do. They sit down and they get absorbed in books, but I definitely try and not be staring at my phone and try to be caught. Even if I don't get to read anything, just to kind of sit down and read a paragraph and then they'll they'll flip the book over, you know, but at least they'll see me doing that. One of the other things I wanted to ask you about was creativity. Yeah. And I was thinking about that a bit when you're describing the sort of wordless book that you read with your five-year-old daughter where, you know, in many ways that's an act in creativity, which is let's look at these pictures and you invent a story. And you're a musician, one of the few people I know who's traded the life of a rock and roll frontman for a PhD in literature and the life of the classroom. But you know, you're a musician and so you're familiar with the creative process. I think a lot of creativity is important to educators and it's an important outcome. And I would say the quest for creativity often also causes educators, and I don't just mean classroom, I mean educators of all stripes, maybe to take on ideas that are educationally suboptimal. Could you just talk a little bit about creativity, where you think it comes from, and how you design educational environments to foster it? I always thought that, you know, particularly about in terms of being an artist or whatever, I left home at 18. I just wanted to be a musician. I just loved art and music and culture and painting. And then I moved into the city centre of Dublin, played around at bands for years, and then managed to blag our way to getting a record deal with Atlantic in America. And I was really young, like early 20s. And then uh, we basically got dropped by Atlantic. They, they spent a lot of money. They got a, a record producer called Michael Beinhorn to come over, and he produced huge bands like Soundgarden and Red Hot Chili Peppers. And he really taught me a really valuable lesson, which was... Firstly, there are no new songs, there are no new stories. And if there were, it would just be avant-garde jazz, prog metal, you know, something that's completely unrecognizable. So he he was telling me, look, here, here are templates of music, like going back to like the 1950s and soul music and kind of drum beats that are standard drum beats, or here's a standard chord progression, you know, all this kind of stuff. He told me the story about how when he did Super Unknown with Soundgarden, he got the demo for the album and it was basically, in his words, he said it was like just a load of riffs with Chris Cornell screaming over the top. And he said to them, <laughs> come back to me when you've actually got some songs. Mm. And they were quite a big band at the time. And they were like, oh, who's this guy? You know, I think he is. He, this guy was a mm. really punishing taskmaster kind of. And he said about a month later, he got a demo tape back. And the first song was Black Hole Sun. And then he said, okay, 
we, we, you know, we can make an album, you know, we can go do it. So I, what I learned from that was I didn't know enough at the time. So I was trying to do something and be something and I hadn't got enough knowledge. We had signed and I was discovering albums like, you know, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye or Astral Weeks or Abbey Road or the whole Dylan back catalog. And I was going, Jesus, like, I don't know any of this and I don't know how to assimilate this. And based on that, what am I going to say myself? And, you know, so I think creativity is, uh, again, to go back to Keats, it's kind of two opposite things at the same time. It's both a copy of something and it's also something new because when people listen to a great song, there's there's something in it that they recognize. So an artist is shaping something that people can relate to. If it was completely original, then there wouldn't be anything to sort of recognize in it. And the further out you can kind of go and still be recognizable, I think is where the great art is. And But part of me thinks like the job of teachers and educators is to furnish kids with all the things that would make them creative. You know, like let's teach them the basics of form with drawing a picture. Here's how, you know, here's all the things. And also part of me, like I spent the first, the first you know, four or five years of my adulthood were being a penniless artist and suffering for it. I certainly didn't want to hear from my teachers about what I should have been doing or, you know, anything like that at all. And certain people, they have teachers who influence them and that's great. But my thing was, you need to suffer. You need to get out into the world. You need to get lost a little bit, which are things you don't want to do in school. But I also hear you saying that those things work better when there's a foundation of knowledge. Right. Like, I think I think when you're saying all the things that allow you to be creative, that will allow you to be creative later, that there's a more indelible connection between your knowledge of 10,000 songs and how they work and why they work the way that they do before you can create your own song. That The connection between knowledge and creativity is under-recognized. True? Definitely. Yeah. There's this idea that creativity is some sort of magic, and it certainly seems like that. Like When I read certain passages of Shakespeare or Keats, like, there's a part of me that thinks there's no way that a human being, with all the kind of the fallible elements of a human being, that the same stuff as me could have come up with that. It seems so rarefied and so elevated that it's, you know, it seems like magic. But John Lennon or McCartney, you know, those guys had an encyclopedic knowledge of songs, you know, going back to very old kind of folk songs to Elvis and rock and roll. And they were devouring as much music as they could and kind of figuring it out and go, well, what's that chord progression? And then you could kind of see them bending that and shaping that into new things. Yeah. Creativity is, again, it's a difficult one for research because it's so nebulous and difficult to define and subjective as well. Fascinating. As you're talking, I was thinking about a mate of mine worked in the music industry. This was back when people had iPods. Someone got him what was on Bob Dylan's iPod and he'd like shared it with me. And it was a ton of songs from the 1940s and the 19, you know, 1930, just like deep archival stuff. I mean, not like stuff you just never heard of. It was like he had a PhD in early music, you know, just constantly studying what was happening in the past. And maybe there's a link to, you know, the one of the sad things about the decline of reading is that reading and particularly reading old books is a connection to the past and the ways that people thought in the past. It's one of the most important forms of diversity, I would say. It's like, how do we understand how people thought about similar problems 50 years and 75 years ago and 100 years ago about the problem of a, you know, a story in a text or the problem of writing a song? This is the problem with making content relevant to kids in the sense that when I was 14, I didn't know what I liked or I had a very narrow definition of what I was going to like in my life. And I can remember a teacher coming into, I would have been 16, 17. He came into the classroom. It was a course on the classics. He held up a copy of the Odyssey and he said, this book will change your life. And I remember being, wow, okay. And uh, he talked about it with such reverence and passion. And we loved it because he loved it. He wasn't even a very good teacher, I would say. He was sort of, uh, 
just a bit all over the shop, but the major thing was this passion for this book. And then that broadened my intellectual horizons. And I loved Homer. And ever since then, I was like, Homer, I love that story. I love the wine dark sea. I love the Cyclops story. You know, I love the sirens. You know, all of that was developed by that teacher sharing that and going, no, this is really important. If he had gone by a lot of kind of practices we see today, it would have been, okay, let's rewrite chapter one of the Odyssey in the style of Star Wars or, you know, something like that. Right. Or he would have said, you've read 10 novels in your life. You choose the book that you want to read. That will motivate you to read more. Choice will motivate you. Carl, this has been a great conversation. Thank you. Wide ranging as promised, but constantly insightful. So thank you both for the conversation and for all your great work. Do you want to just tell folks where they can find out more about you and follow you on social media since we're such big fans of social media? Yeah, yeah. Um, To be mainly found on Twitter, I think there's a good little community of people on there. I have a blog as well that you can get through there. But yeah, that that would be the main place, I think. Great. And for readers who are wondering and want to learn more about cognitive psychology, how learning happens, seminal works in educational psychology and what they mean in practice. It's by Carl and Paul Kirshner. Carl, thanks again. I look forward to talking to you soon, hopefully on a rooftop bar somewhere in Barcelona. (laughs) Thanks, Doug. Hopefully see you soon. Sweat the Technique is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. You could follow all of the Branch's podcasts at at the Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And you could check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so that you can join us every Wednesday for more Sweat the Technique.